This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. If you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you send and receive calls and texts from your new business phone number. That way, you can run your business from anywhere and respond to clients quickly with Grasshopper's mobile apps. Grasshopper. Sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com kick to get $20 off your first month. That's grasshopper.com kick. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. For 50 years, the Soviet Union unwillingly supplied American dance companies with some of their greatest stars. The steady stream of defectors included Rudolf Nureyev, Mikhail Baryshnikov, Natalia Makarova, Alexander Gudinov, and George Balanchine, just to name a few. But then in 2011, in a sign that the Cold War had truly ended, a dancer with the American Ballet Theater became the first American ever to join the principal company of the granddaddy of all dance companies, the Bolshoi Ballet in Moscow. Now that dancer, David Hallberg, writes about it in a memoir titled A Body of Work, Dancing to the Edge and Back. And today, David joins me on the podcast to talk about his lifelong love of dance, his fish-out-of-water experience in Moscow, and his difficult but inspiring recovery from a foot injury in 2014 that nearly ended his career. He discusses the discipline and dedication needed to make it to the top as a dancer, the unique chemistry that goes into partnering with the right ballerina, and the -the behind-the-scenes coaches who have passed down ballet's greatest roles since the very beginning. He recalls his tough adjustment to life in Moscow, some of the charming age-old traditions at the Bolshoi, and the almost unbelievable 2013 acid attack on his then-boss, Bolshoi director Sergei Filin. He then opens up about the debilitating injury that required him to completely relearn how to dance and his painful, hard-won comeback to the ballet stage. It's an inspiring story from a deeply passionate artist. Coming up with dancer David Hallberg in just a moment. David Hallberg is a principal dancer with American Ballet Theatre and resident guest artist at the Australian Ballet. In addition to that, he became the first American ever to join the granddaddy of all ballet companies, Russia's legendary Bolshoi Ballet. He writes about it in a new memoir titled A Body of Work, Dancing to the Edge and Back. David, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, David, I understand that you got into dance originally from watching Fred Astaire movies, right? Correct. Yeah, Fred Astaire was the first person to really spark an interest in dance. Um, he, I saw him, you know, gliding across the TV screen, and I was, I was just totally enthralled with what he was doing, and wanted to do exactly what, what I was, you know, seeing him him do across the TV screen. Yeah, and it's interesting because I remember Baryshnikov saying that in his mind, Fred Astaire was the greatest dancer that ever lived. And I hear this a lot. Classically trained dancers idolize this man who came up in vaudeville and had zero classical training whatsoever. Yeah, it's interesting. I think 
because of my American upbringing as well, um, I was more influenced by American dancers at the beginning, and none of them were ballet dancers. I mean, mm-hmm. Fred Astaire was my absolute idol as a kid, and um, that's who I wanted to be like. I wanted to tap like him. I didn't, you know, I didn't even know what ballet was at the beginning of my of my dance inspiration. So then, did you start out with tap before you got into ballet? I did. Yeah, uh, tap was was my sort of entry into dance. Um, I didn't have tap shoes uh, when I when I first saw Fred, so I taped nickels on the bottoms of my penny loafers, <laughs> as written in the book, and um, you know just just wanted to be exactly like him. Didn't really care what it sounded like or what I was doing. I just imitation was uh, what the greatest form of flattery they say. <laughs> yeah. So then, initially, you weren't into ballet. Did you think it was too rigid? You were mostly doing tap and then jazz dance, right? Yeah, I tapped and uh, I did tap and jazz for a number of years. And listen, I thought ballet was boring. I mean, I thought it was dusty and old and and strict. Um, I I really wasn't attracted to ballet at the beginning stages of my of my. Um, you know, dancing career as a, as a young kid. But then ballet, I have to say, you know, ballet really found me. I found the inspiration in, in it and, um, and never looked back. And you talk about when you were younger, taking ballet classes and a particular teacher, Mr. Han, who was a pretty big influence on you. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, thankfully, I, Mr. Han was in Phoenix, Arizona, where I was growing up. And my parents and I had no idea what a good ballet teacher was compared to a bad ballet teacher. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, Mr. Han was right there and he was he was, you know, so formative. He was an excellent teacher and just so formative in my classical training. I was starting ballet late. I started when I was 13, if, if you can consider that late in the real world. <laughs> but um, when I started, he recognized that I was starting late and we spent a very, very intense four years, um, hitting the the books hard per se, and and really, really making up for lost time. The same as training to be an Olympic athlete; it just takes up your entire life. Really. Absolutely, you know the the dedication, the perseverance is comparable to any any athlete mm-hmm. um, in sports or you know an Olympian or anything. And probably not surprisingly, uh, as a young kid in school, you also had to endure a constant barrage of bullying. And you talk about guys who would call you a girl or worse than that or dump perfume on you. How did you cope with that? Well, of course, it was scarring as a kid. You know, you really just want your contemporaries to like you. Yeah. Um, But I think the way I dealt with it was, was through through dance you know i had found an outlet that i felt um accepted i felt uh, passionate about and i have to say it was it was that outlet that saved me from the barrage of of bullying and perfume and and fists and you know verbal abuse that i endured um during school hours and eventually, I think you said that you went to the School for the Arts there and you were kind of in a peer group that understood and respected what you were trying to do because they were all in the same boat, right? Mm. I found yeah. a haven in a school called Arizona School for the Arts, which still thrives today in Phoenix, Arizona. And it was interesting because it, in this art school, I, I went in its inaugural year 
And it was all of the ugly ducklings of Phoenix came to this <laughs> school. <laughs> we all had similar stories um, uh, in in public schools that we attended throughout Phoenix. And we all had artistic inclinations. So we found a community that just um, accepted us. We, we accepted everyone. Mm -hmm. um, it really was a, such a saving grace. Growing up, your dream was not really to go to the Bolshoi. You probably, in fact, thought of that as kind of a stodgy company. You wanted to join the American Ballet Theater in New York, where Mikhail Baryshnikov and Alexander Gudinov had been dancers and choreographers like Balanchine and Jerome Robbins had worked. Uh, how did you eventually get into ABT? I went to a summer program when I was 16, and it was there that I... I got to know uh, the teachers and the the director of American Ballet Theater, and that was really a, uh, it was really the first steps into my my um, my career at ABT. Then I joined the studio company after I graduated from high school, which is the junior company um, of American Ballet Theater, and then I joined the main company. And my dream was ABT, mainly because. The male dancers there were so phenomenal. Yeah. There was a crop of male dancers that one wasn't like the other. Uh, there was, you know, there were virtuosic dancers, lyrical dancers, um, technical dancers, artistic dancers, and it just to me, I was just so attracted to this company that harbored these unbelievable male dancers dominating the ballet world. Yeah, and one interesting aspect of that is you talk about how principal dancers like you have a coach. I didn't know that there was such a thing as a coach in dancing um, who help you prepare for a role. And often it's a retired principal dancer who's played all of the same roles that you're playing. And essentially, you say that they've passed down these classical roles from generation to generation, from the beginning of ballet, really. It's true. Ballet is passed down through whoever has danced the role. So if you take Swan Lake, for example, as I dance the prince, someone who has danced the prince a generation or two before me will pass on that role, pass on not only the steps, but the artistic uh, undercurrent behind the character. And it's really one of, that's one of the beautiful traditions of the classical ballet field is that the roles that we portray can only be danced successfully through that kind of passing on from generation to generation. But it also must make it hard for you to make a role your own, I imagine. And I write about that uh, yeah. vividly in the book. It's, it's great that you mention that because that's something that I have struggled with my entire career. I have, you know, I, I've really um, questioned what my individual interpretation is in something that has been created hundreds of years ago and has been danced by the greatest dancers in the world. Uh, and if taking Swan Lake as an example, you know, Swan Lake is a ballet that I really, I really questioned a lot of. It was an honor to dance Swan Lake. But I also said, well, Am I just an interpreter and am I not just, mm -hmm. am I not an artist, a creative artist? Am I just interpreting these roles that have been, you know, passed down generation after generation after generation? Yeah, you talk about that balance between getting it, the actual dancing, technically perfect, and then being able to tap into some deeper, more emotional level. Uh, I don't want to call it acting, but 
some kind of a connection, something that's personal that allows whatever that intangible thing is within you to shine out in that character. Absolutely. Where would you seek that out? You talk about how you at times got tired of the ABT and you would seek inspiration elsewhere. Mm. When I, when I finally made those debuts, like in Swan Lake and Romeo and Mm -hmm. Juliet, and I got over the rush of, of dancing those for the first couple of times, I started to look elsewhere and elsewhere was the avant-garde. It was it was a world that didn't even inhabit any inkling of classical ballet or its traditions. And it was through that, actually, that I didn't know it was happening at the time, but it was through that process of seeing all of this avant-garde work that I was able to bring sort of my own individuality back to a... a a, an art form that is so traditional and can be so, you know, it can border on on dusty. Yeah, and when you do that, uh, do you meet any resistance from a company like ABT to you going out and, you know, looking at different types of dance, experimenting with other stuff? Is there any fear that that's going to undo everything that they worked on with you? That's a good question. And there actually isn't resistance. Really? But I have found resistance on the other side. So when I, oh, interesting. St- when I started to see avant-garde work and meet, um, meet choreographers from that field, meet dancers from that field, they, for the most part, have spent a good amount of time rejecting a classical ballet yeah. and and you know going beyond sort of the confines of classical ballet and it was there that people sort of looked at me and, and a little bit with disdain or ridicule that I'm this ballet dancer and why you know people would ask very frequently when they'd see me in the audience for a show like that they'd say well, what are you doing here you know, what are you working <laughs> really? on? And I would say, oh, the Nutcracker. And they go, yeah, yeah, figures. You know, they would <laughs> kind of just look at me with a little bit of um, of ridicule. It was, it, was, it, it was really fascinating. Now, when you get to that level as a professional dancer, what is a typical day like for you? Well, typical day, what, what I have learned is that routine is, is key, mm-hmm. you know. Muscle um, memory. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I start my day around 9 a.m., uh, in the gym, I condition for an hour, um, and that involves absolutely no ballet yet. Uh, and then after an hour's worth of conditioning, I go into daily ballet class, and that is um, an hour and a half. And again, six days a week, like clockwork, to hone in on the craft, do the same you know exercises and the same execute the same steps. Uh, a lot of people ask, well, don't you have it right yet? <laughs> uh, and no, actually, we don't have it right yet. <laughs> um, and then rehearsals start after about a three-hour kind of um, conditioning and, and technique um, uh, warm-up. And rehearsals are anywhere from two hours a day to five hours a day. Mm-hmm. And then there's the cool-down, which is, you know, a, an ice bucket for my feet and, you know, t- um and rinse and repeat the next day. <laughs> now, when you're that dedicated to your art, is there any room for a personal life? <laughs> there is room, but it's always complicated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, kind of a different sort of relationship. You talk about the difficulties of doing partner work with another dancer, and you recall some ballerinas with whom you worked very well and some with whom you didn't work so well. Mm. As a dancer, what do you need from a ballerina you're partnering with? 
connection. Mm-hmm. You really need an emotional connection to the partner uh, next to you. And it's a great example is in life. I mean, it's it's if you have a connection with someone or not, a, an emotional, yeah. a physical, any sort of connection like that. And same goes for one of your partners uh, in classical ballet. And yes, I, 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 I've written about um, partners that I haven't gotten along with so well and, and were a little bit like oil and water. But then I do write about the, the you know, electric connection that I have with, with certain partners. And it's something that you can't even work on. It's something that is so instinctual and really? so um, you know it from the very beginning of whether it will um, make you a better dancer, a better partner, a better artist or not. Well, one partner that you did have an electric connection with was, uh, I believe her name was Natasha. You said that she was a big reason for why you joined the Bolshoi Ballet eventually, right? She was. Our first time we danced together was in New York at ABT. And we just, I mean, it it really just surprised us, uh, the connection we had. Hmm. She is the complete opposite of of me in terms of character. She's fiery. She's, she's, um, dramatic. She's uh, volatile and I'm, you know, calm, cool, collected most of the time. (laughs) But what happened on stage was this, was this electric, um, almost explosion the first time we danced together. And consequently we danced together more and more. And she was one of the, the main reasons, um, I went to Bolshoi. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with dancer David Hallberg when we come back in just a minute. If you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you run your business from your cell phone while keeping your business and personal lives separate. Choose from their huge inventory of local, toll-free, and vanity toll-free numbers. Simply forward your new number to your mobile phone and start taking calls immediately. Whether you're in an office, in your car, or out shopping for the holidays, Grasshopper's iPhone and Android apps help you stay connected to your customers. Not to mention you can send and receive calls and texts from your business phone number, set up multiple extensions for everyone on your team, get your voicemails transcribed and emailed to you, work from anywhere with call forwarding to make and receive calls from your computer via the desktop app, and even utilize Wi-Fi calling. Better yet, Grasshopper offers easy and instant setup and 24-7 customer support, all without any long-term contracts. I've used Grasshopper for our podcast's 800 number, and they make sure everything runs smoothly so I don't have to worry and can focus on the important things. Grasshopper, sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com kick to get $20 off your first month. That's grasshopper.com kick. You danced, I think, a couple of times as a guest artist with the Bolshoi in Moscow before you got the offer and you were admitted as an American dancer in the regular company of the Bolshoi. How did that invitation come about? Well, the director, the new director, had been director for about two weeks. And uh, I was in Moscow with ABT on tour and he, you know, set up a lunch 
And it was at that lunch that he said, you know, one of the things I want to do as new director is to um, bring you in as a dancer with the company. And I was floored. You know, Bolshoi at that time wasn't really open to foreigners. Mm -hmm. It was 99% Russian uh, dancers. And it was never on my radar. It was never on my radar because I thought the company was a little antiquated. And I also didn't like Moscow. I found Moscow <laughs> to be a really harsh city. Yeah. But I have to say the opportunity he gave me opened my entire world. Uh, yeah. I mean, you must have been aware that that was probably a big risk for him two weeks in as a new director to be the first to invite an American to join. It was a huge risk for him. It was a huge risk for me. You know, I, I didn't really have any precedent. There wasn't someone before me yeah. that had done it. And so I was going in, um, you know, I was going in, diving in headfirst uh, into a sea that I couldn't even just see the water. You know, it was <laughs> it was a black mass. This was a huge deal because for 50 years, there had been a regular stream of dancers like Rudolf Nureyev and Mikhail Baryshnikov who defected from the Soviet Union to the U.S., but we had never actually sent an American dancer back the other way to Russia, right? Yeah, very true. And, you know, of course I didn't see it as the reverse defection as yeah. the press um Well, yeah, I'm not saying you're a traitor to it. the U.S. No. <laughs> actually, I went on Stephen Colbert's show when he was doing uh, the Colbert show, and that's that's exactly what he called oh, me. Oh, really? He called me a traitor <laughs> and a defector. But, you know, it, um. it, was, it was symbolic in a way that you know, during the Soviet Union, that was would have never been yeah. an option. And now, because of of the blurred lines between um, between borders, that was a possibility. Were you hesitant about picking up and just moving to a place that's so different and not exactly known for warmth and hospitality? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it um, it scared me, and you know, this was the. The reason I said yes to it was because of that fact. It mm -hmm. scared me to death. and You wanted to get out of your comfort zone. Absolutely. And that's a reoccurring theme, having written the book, um, that I realized about my character, that I, I really <laughs> love to put myself out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Now, what was life like in Moscow for you? Well, at first, it was very solitary. I had no friends. Um, the company, the Bolshoi institution, not just the dancers, but um, all 3,000 employees were very, very warm to me. They welcomed me. Really? Yeah, it, surprisingly. They they were curious about me being there. They were accommodating. Um, you know, even the uh, the babushkas cleaning the, the hallways um, uh, would look at me passing by and, and just say in the little English that they knew, good morning. You know, it was very <laughs> endearing, you know. Yeah. And, but life after hours was very solitary. Really? Uh, I didn't have, I didn't really have friends. Moscow was still a strange city to me, impenetrable per se. And that's something that I, you know, it was a, a, a great experience to kind of see, um, from the periphery, you know, I, when I would have these really harsh social experiences, like waiting in line at the grocery store, mm -hmm. and, you know, no one can, no one really has a concept of waiting in a single file line, I would just take myself out of the situation and think, you know, 
I would talk to myself and just say, you put yourself in this situation. <laughs> you are learning so much from being here. You know, don't don't dive in and and be immersed in all of this. Actually just see it as as a an anthropological experience. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, Russia is not exactly known for being the most open-minded place with respect to gay rights. You are openly gay. There have been stories of hate crimes against gays, and in 2013 they passed a law essentially making it a crime to express homosexuality in public. Were you concerned at all about living as a gay man in Moscow? You know, there actually wasn't much concern. Mm-hmm. I, I do know that homophobia is, is rife in that country, as is homophobia uh, in parts of this country sure. is, is rife. But I have to say I was never— I never felt in danger. Um, I never felt that I had to uh, suppress who I was. Uh, I knew that in public I would not be able to walk down the street holding a guy's hand. Mm -hmm. But I never felt like I had to hide who I was. Um, All of Bolshoi Theater knew I was gay. Uh, And my public life was... Similar to my life in New York, uh, you know, once I did meet friends, um, I met friends who were in the artistic world, designers, photographers, and many of them were openly gay, Russian, living in Moscow. Really? Oh. Yeah. The experience surprised me and, and as well surprised a lot of people. You know, people yeah. um, would automatically assume that I wouldn't be able to walk down the street and, you know, I would be in danger of, of being... Um, being discriminated against, but that was never the case. Mm-hmm. Fairly recently, I think it was just a couple of months ago, the Bolshoi was about to mount a production on the life of Nureyev, who was one of their famous alumni, but is also gay. And apparently it got shut down unofficially by the government, although they came up with some excuse saying the production wasn't good enough or something like that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I haven't seen the production, so I don't know. But the you know the, the the risk with an organization as big as Bolshoi theater mm-hmm. is that you sometimes play art safe mm-hmm. and you know the 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 more avant-garde productions are usually and the same goes for in america the more avant-garde productions are usually saved for smaller companies smaller theater companies or dance companies yeah when more um, visibility and more um, financial sort of commitment is at risk, art is sometimes played safe. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a pity. And, you know, when I retire as a dancer and hopefully go on to help lead this art form as a director or something like that, I really want to make it my point to... to if I'm given the opportunity to be in, in an institution as big as Bolshoi Theater or American Ballet Theater, we continue to risk art, risk mm-hmm. in art, because sometimes playing it safe, like they did and they got cold feet, um, isn't always the way to go. 
Yeah, yeah, and this would have been, I think they say, the first time that a ballet from the Bolshoi has been censored since the fall of the Soviet Union. So it's pretty significant, but it gets into the politics of it when you have a state-run ballet company and you talk about having Dmitry Medvedev show up at performances and come on stage and that sort of thing. So mm. it's a whole other dimension that you probably didn't have at the ABT. It really is. And a beautiful thing that I learned mm -hmm. in at Bolshoi is how much people care about what is presented on the stage. That's and true. it goes for the Russian public and it goes for the government and it goes for the people who are employed at Bolshoi Theater. The employees at Bolshoi Theater, it's not just a job to them. It's an absolute lifestyle from the stage crew to the dancers to the opera singers to the general director. You know, this is this is the gem of Russia and they they take it with the utmost care and seriousness. Yeah, you're right. That gets to something interesting about Russians is that for them, the Bolshoi is, you know, this huge source of national pride in a way that I don't think Americans really take that kind of pride in the ABT or I don't know, <laughs> the Kennedy Center or something like that. It's almost like the kind of pride that we would have in a football team or something. I, I compare it to that yeah. often. You know, um, uh, ballet in Russia is like baseball here in America. <laughs> Now, what is it like going from ABT, a company that's less than 80 years old, to the Bolshoi, a 240-year-old ballet company? Are, are there a lot of traditions at the Bolshoi and entrenched thinking on how things are done? It, it's, you know, Swan Lake was created there. Right. And so the the idea of how things should be done, you know, is very controversial. I mean, people have their opinions generations of dancers are you know once you retire from the stage as a dancer you are still um decorated and applauded when you enter a theater and i mean the the, the experience is unbelievable so that goes with you know certain traditions and thoughts about the art form um that are heavily entrenched uh in in you know in, in that kind of thought process of how Swan Lake should be performed, mm -hmm. of how ballet should evolve, of what should be uh, respected and what should be dismissed. Mm -hmm. One of those unique traditions is uh, you talk about kind of in a lighter moment, the Bolshoi costume ladies. And I guess with most companies, costumes are reused or passed on, but at the Bolshoi, costumes are made to measure for the principal dancers. And it sounds like those old Russian gals uh, sort of took a shine to you eventually, huh? <laughs> they did. I think they were really warm to, you know, a different kind of character. I have a, I have a very American side of me, you know, uh, saying hi and smiling. And, <laughs> and um, I think they, you know, they were just fascinated by this American dancer coming in and, and, uh, um, and I was, you know, I didn't expect to have costumes made to measure. I, um, I was, I was just totally, I was like a kid in a candy store. I was just in awe, you know? Yeah. And I think uh, at one point they were so flattered that you mentioned them in a press conference or a press release, right? <laughs> they were, I was in a, I was in a, a press conference for the premiere of Sleeping Beauty. And I, I just looked down and I said, well, I was wearing the costume and I said, well, look at, you know, look at the beauty of this costume. I'm so honored to wear it. The next day I went in for another costume fitting and they said, oh, thank you for mentioning <laughs> us in the press. We're very, very grateful. <laughs> yeah. And they even have this special honor of they put your, your photo on the wall, which they only reserve for dancers they really, really liked. <laughs> yes. Much to my surprise, I walked yeah. in one day and I was next to some of the Bolshoi greats. So I was quite <laughs> flattered. 
you know, you don't speak Russian, and I'm assuming that the dancers or the director don't speak particularly great English. So how did the, the dance director communicate with you in rehearsals if you don't speak English, you don't speak Russian? Well, some people did speak English. Okay. But, but on the other hand, you know, when I was working with a very famous choreographer there named Yuri Gigerovich, right? he would be on his microphone um, screaming corrections to the dancers on the stage, and he would scream corrections to me in Russian, and my coach would be in the wings screaming them at me in English. <laughs> so um, it was, uh, you know, Russian from the audience and English from the wings kind of thing. <laughs> I eventually got there, I think. Yeah. Now, many listeners will remember it was all over the news in 2013 when the director of the Bolshoi, your boss, Sergei Filin, was the victim of an acid attack in Moscow. What was your first reaction when you found out about that? Uh, disbelief, shock, um, you know, all of the the sort of natural reactions. Um, I didn't actually b- believe the story at first, of course, because you're, you just you think... Um, how something like that could happen in a world that you inhabit, and then obviously the story was true, and 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 I'm still, you know, my my reaction stays the same. I just can't believe something like that would have happened. And did he recover his sight? I forget. I know that they he, threw it in his eyes. He did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Apparently, it was perpetrated by, of all people, another dancer in the Bolshoi who was upset that his girlfriend had been passed over for some parts. You must have worried, probably as an American in this big Russian company, that there might be dancers who harbored similar resentment that here was this foreigner who was coming over and getting all the good parts at the Bolshoi. Were you worried that you could be the next victim? I wasn't. No? Uh, But I can see, you know, I could see the concern in, 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 in people and, and, you know, my existence there. Um, I knew that I I knew that I had sort of it, one way or another saying that I had won the dancers over. You know, I, I had I had friends in the company now, mm-hmm. and and I didn't sense a, a, I didn't sense rivalry. Um, and Sergey before the attacks had, had sensed you know uh, something coming. Okay. Um, but you know, again, it's it's. It's such a shock to any sort of world, and especially for me, the artistic world, because our art is escapism. You know, you go to a mm-hmm. museum to yeah. to to see the beauty of art. You go to a theater to see the beauty of art, and when when a world like that is sh- is shook so heavily by an attack like that, it's it's. I mean, it's still unfathomable. I think when you learned that news, you were in America because at that same time. You were still a full company member at the American Ballet Theater, I think, and you were constantly flying back and forth between Moscow and New York, not to mention touring shows on top of all that. How did you maintain that pace? Um, I did it by sleeping really well on long-haul flights. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, you know, it was, it was, as I learned, next to impossible um, schedule, but... Mm. Um, that fed me in a way. I was um, 
I was hungry for more. I was never satiated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about how it was hard for you to turn down a gig. You know, if you were invited to perform at the La Scala Opera House in Milan, you couldn't say no to that. That's, you know, a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a dancer. So you kept pushing and pushing yourself, and along the way you had this terrible injury to your foot. It kept getting worse, and you kept dancing. At what point did you realize that that was going to be a serious problem for you? When I couldn't push off for a jump. Okay. When I couldn't, um, you know, do what was needed to be done yeah. <laughs> without excruciating pain. And, oh. you know, it started out as an itch and then went into, you know, kind of a jabbing pain and then into, mm-hmm. a, into a stabbing pain. And, and I eventually knew after a couple of performances in New York with Bolshoi Theater that, that I needed to do something. And uh, surgery was, was the, the, the option. And how many surgeries did you undergo on that foot? I went through two surgeries. Okay. Uh, the first surgery uh, was a complete failure. Um, and so then I went to another doctor, and he sort of remedied the first failed surgery. You talk a lot about the rehabilitation program that you went to, I think, with the Australian Ballet in Melbourne Prior to that, I think you had gone through a year or two of trying to get back up on your feet without much success. This was pretty much your last hope, right? It was. I struggled for over a year after these two operations to get back um, from this injury. And I was starting to see my career cave in on me. I, I was considering, you know, retirement. Um, no athlete thinks that a, a career-ending injury will happen to them, but they hear about it happening. And that was happening to me. And um, I knew that the rehabilitation team in Melbourne was the best in the world. I had danced down there an, a couple of times. And it was between retiring early and going on um, to, you know, to other things in the dance world um, as a non-dancer or giving it one last shot in Australia. And so I shaved my head and I bought a one-way ticket to Australia and I had no um, no idea of when I would return. Yeah, and the rehabilitation program is fascinating because you say that you had to pretty much go back to basics and relearn every step that you'd probably learned when you were a high school student or something, but relearn them using different parts of your body. Correct. I, you know... The rehabilitation team in Melbourne, um, at first they didn't even concern themselves with my ballet technique. They just built strength around my entire instrument Mm -hmm. and uh, strength that I actually never had and had lost um, due to to atrophy. So they built these muscles that I didn't even know existed and you know when I went back into the ballet studio they wanted me to activate these muscles to uh to execute my ballet technique and whereas before because ballet was a calling for me I just did it and now I actually had to think about doing it and that was like you know no Novocaine at the dentist. <laughs> it was so painful because yeah. I, I, I was thought to myself, well, I've had this fifteen-year career. Why now do I have to consider doing it differently? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it must have been a humbling experience having been a principal dancer at the Bolshoi and then being told, well, 
maybe you learned something wrong 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was through that, though, it was through my internal uh, conversation every day <laughs> that I said to myself, well, what you were doing before actually wasn't working. You have to huh. let go of what it was in the past because mm-hmm. it led you to this injury. You have to open your mind to what these people are trying to um, achieve with you because this is the way out of this. This is the way out of this situation. And, and amazingly, it actually worked. Uh, what was it like when you were finally able to perform on stage again? You know, I think I use the word rebirth a, a little too often, but it was <laughs> but it was appropriate. It was like an artistic rebirth. Wow. It was not only an artistic rebirth, but a, a, a personal rebirth as a as a as a human. Um, I was I was brought to the the depths of despair, and um, I incrementally, through fourteen months in Australia, climbed my way back up. And wow. through the process, I went through all my dirty laundry, my personal life, my artistic life, uh, my mental and emotional, um, you know, stability and well-being. And through that process, I became a completely new person and a completely new artist. And it wasn't just a one-time comeback on stage. You are still performing with the ABT, right? Correct. Yeah, so you are still a company member of the ABT. I am, and you know now I've been I've been on stage not 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 a year almost okay. uh, almost, and um, it's just a completely different ride now. And <laughs> I'm surprising myself physically. I didn't know actually what I would be capable of doing uh, once I returned to the stage. But I have to say, my body is just, it's like a completely new, new instrument. Wow. Well, before we go, what kind of advice do you give to young people who say that they want to follow in your footsteps and be a dancer? You know, I would say the same advice that Mr. Han Are you crazy? Gave me. <laughs> my, the same advice Mr. Han would give me. And, you know, hard work really does pay off. Mm-hmm. Um, hard work paid off to where I got, and then hard work paid off to the injury and the incremental climb back up. And you know, through that, I learned uh, extreme humility, uh, gratitude. You really only know gratitude until something's been uh, taken away or almost taken away. And you know, I, I really just hard work really, really pays off. Well, it's a remarkably inspiring journey. Congratulations on your comeback and on your new book. Again, it's titled A Body of Work, Dancing to the Edge and Back. David Hallberg, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to David Hallberg for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, A Body of Work, Dancing to the Edge and Back on Amazon or download the audiobook on Audible. Visit David's website at davidhallberg.com and follow him on Twitter at at David Hallberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Credible.com. Credible.com is an online marketplace for student loan refinancing. Using Credible.com's simple platform, it takes less than two minutes to find out if you're overpaying on your student loans. You could save thousands by refinancing. All you have to do is visit Credible.com slash kick, answer a few questions, and right away you'll get real rates, not ranges of rates, from multiple lenders. 
Checking your rates will not affect your credit score, so you really have nothing to lose. The average user who refinances through Credible.com saves almost $19,000 over the life of their loan. And for a limited time, my listeners will get a $200 welcome bonus when refinancing through Credible.com slash kick. That's Credible.com slash kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.